Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, We want to bring you guests today that these are returning guests, and these guests you all found very interesting because I think that they appealed to that adventurer that's in all of us when we think about, gee, what are some of the wild and crazy or bold and different things that I might do when I retire, where I might live especially, Um, But yet a lot of us either don't get around to it or we just dismiss it as saying, no, that's not realistic. So we want to emphasize the fact that, as this show suggests, the third act can be and should be the best, the most exciting. And in order for that to be true, that means you should be doing something different from what you've done historically. So We wanted these guests to come back, and we're going to talk about some different ways that you might view retirement and some different ideas as to where you might spend retirement. And in fact, we might say very different from what many of you were thinking. That's an understatement. You can introduce our guest, Jill. Yes, our guest returning, uh, as Joe Cordell said, Susan Haskins and her husband, Dan Presher, both are senior editors for internationalliving.com, and they've authored a couple of books. Uh, One of those is The International Living Guide to Retiring Overseas on a Budget. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I have to tell you, I came across International Living oh, when as a newsletter, kind of a little magazine almost. Uh, must have been, I don't know how far you all go back, but I think this was 15 <laughs> or 20 years ago. And I, rem- I would go into the library at lunch. And when I was taking a lunch break from my, I was practicing as an attorney at the time, and it was just relaxing. I would look through it. I'd fantasize about these different places. You would list some of the options of where you can consider retiring, the pros and cons. You talked about everything from crime to to cost of living, et cetera. And I just found it fun to to look at it and think about the possibilities. Now, so far, I've not yet done an international move, although I've traveled a lot. I love to travel internationally. But this topic interests me, and I think it will interest our guests. Have you seen in the last 15 years an increase in the level of interest in living abroad? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's um, The Internet has kind of changed everything. Uh, we've only been with International Living for about two decades. but <laughs> Only. The, the, the <laughs> newsletter you guys have been talking about has been around for more than 40 years. Yeah. Wow. So... People have always known that there was an option to live uh, a less expensive, more exotic, kind of happier life abroad. But since the inception of the internet, people can just get on and look up people who are doing it. I mean, they might have friends who are living in Thailand or, or Brazil or someplace in Mexico. And, you know, nowadays you can get, you can join a Facebook group of people who are living in a particular place. So in the last, I'd say since the inception of the internet, it has really burgeoned a lot. Right. I think with exactly what you're saying, but also 
it's easier to book travel. It's easier to fly right now. I mean, it, it, than it has been, say, two decades ago. You can get online. You can book your travel. You don't have to have, uh, you know, tr travel checks anymore. You can AT ATM machine. You can get cash when you land at the airport. Everything has just gotten so much easier as this idea of retiring overseas has become more accessible. And of course we have to accept the last two years because nothing has been easy the last two years, right, except right. getting on the internet and exploring right. these things. So we think yeah. there's a huge pent up demand of, yeah. of people who've been researching this for two years going, man, when we can fly again, I am out of I'm here. Going. I'm right. going. And, right. And some countries though, I'm, I would suspect, uh, particularly Maybe some Caribbean countries, maybe some uh, Latin American, are less restrictive about travel maybe in COVID than others. Is that true? Right. We were just talking about yeah. this yesterday. Mexico has absolutely no requirements, no vaccine or uh, proof of a negative COVID test required. Other countries have varying levels of requirements, but... Um, and it changes every day. It does, I mean, yeah. Right. Nobody knows what it's going to be like tomorrow or next week. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about where you're living now and how long you've lived there and what your thoughts are about that. This will be interesting. <laughs> yeah, we are pretty much roving right now. I mean, because of the because of the pandemic, we've spent most of the last two years in the United States, but we are residents of Mexico. And we were sort of between households when the pandemic started. So when this is all over, you can expect to see us firmly back in Mexico. We're still trying to decide exactly where that will be, but we know it, we will be at least part-time in Puerto Vallarta on the Pacific coast. Yeah, but Mexico is a big place. It's it's um, it's at least a dozen different good retirement and second uh, second home right. markets. So we've got to decide exactly what we want we've, to do when everything clears yeah, up. Yeah, we've lived in two different places, three different, three places, different places in Mexico. So um, Mexico will is and will be our permanent home eventually. And, and that's an example, though, of I think one of the advantages of retiring maybe in this area of the world versus Europe is that you are so close to, you know, familiar medical care, familiar, you know, family, et cetera. So when something like this comes along, which hopefully not in our lifetime or our children's lifetime again. Right. But, but at least it means that if you're living abroad and you're in Mexico, you jump on a plane and you come back and, and maybe you stay here for a while if you think it's better. And which for people on the East Coast is kind of the same story with Europe. I mean, uh, Portugal is on our global retirement index. There, there are some wonderful European countries that from the East Coast of the United States aren't much farther away than than parts of Mexico or Central America. So it depends on, the U.S. is a big place too. It depends on where you live. Now, where have you been staying in the U.S. during the pandemic? When we left the U.S., 20 years ago, we were living in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where our son and our grandchild live right now. Our son, daughter-in-law, who's from Panama, by the way. Um, and we both have elderly parents right now. So we're kind of right in the midst of where they are in Omaha. So we're dealing with all those third age issues that come up. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's a, that's a period. You It's a challenging yeah. period where you have lots of responsibilities. And I, uh, when I think about Mexico, though, you know, I know it's got an unfair rap. People tend to want to paint it with a broad brush. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but others have told me that there are some very safe places in Mexico and that it's just very, it's like a variety of different environments rather than one. Yeah, Janet Blazer, a previous guest, lives in Mazatlan, and she said it's yeah. very safe. Yeah, you that's remember? right. Right, right. So c- talk it's, about some of the areas you, you like best in Mexico or you think would, would be great places to consider for retirement. So many. Oh, man. Well, Puerto Vallarta, obviously, is one of our favorite places, and we'll, we'll be part-timing there soon if and when, when the travel restrictions are lifted and, and all things become equal. But we've lived in um, Ajijic, Lake, uh, Lake, Chapala, Lake Chapala, south of Guadalajara in, in the central part. We've lived in San Miguel, de, San Miguel de, Allende. de Allende up in the highlands. And we've lived in, right now, we are residents of Merida in Yucatan, the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A place that we live for years and years. And all of those places, depending on what neighborhood you live in, have, we found statistically safer than many places in the United States. It, it just depends on what neighborhood you right. choose. And generally the beach communities, at least the tourist beach communities, tend to be safe, don't they? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, you, you, like everywhere in the world, you will always have a certain amount of crime. You know, that I don't think there's anywhere where you are going to be totally crime-free. But it's property um, crime, isn't it? It's not violent crime for tourists. Yeah, it's crime of convenience. Right. Uh, Money changes everything. And when expats with a a relative high income compared to the locals move into someplace, that changes things. That changes the economic outlook. But as far as Mexico goes, we can honestly say that just like the United States, if you don't live somewhere where drugs are processed, shipped, or transferred or sold, you're as safe as you are anywhere else on the planet. Mexico has the dubious distinction of being next door to the biggest illegal drug market on the planet, which is the United States. And those economics can't be ignored. But there are places in Mexico that have nothing to do with that trade. Those are the places we like. Those are the places we feel perfectly safe. So what other countries in Central America do you like? Well, we have lived in, we've lived in Panama, which actually is the top ranked country on our global retirement index. We lived there for a year. That's our son was visiting us and that's where he met his now wife. Um, not Central America, but we've also lived in Ecuador and would happily go back there any time. The reason we left Ecuador to move to Mexico was to be closer to our son and his family and our now grandchild, which we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So um, Mexico has become a place of convenience for us. But if we were to do it all over again, you might find us back in Ecuador because we just really enjoyed our time there. And there was a wonderful six six or eight months in Nicaragua. Uh, yeah, believe it or not. On the, mm. on the really? coast in Nicaragua. So uh, talk a little bit about Panama, though, uh, why you've ranked it number one out of all the countries in the world right now. And your, Tell us about your travel index first. Well, the, the Global Retirement Index is something that international living has been doing every year for a long time. A long time. <laughs> yeah. As far back as you can remember, right? Yeah. And... Um, we just talk to our correspondents and editors who are living the life, living the expat life around the world, about what they like about the places they live, what's on their radar. 
uh, which countries are coming up on the radar, because everything changes. Visa requirements change, uh, economics change, governments change. And every year that list gets juggled a little bit. But you know, we have we have 10 things right now that we judge a country by affordable housing, uh, retirement benefits, how easy it is to be uh, a resident, get a resident visa. Uh, entertainment, development, climate, healthcare, uh, opportunity, all, all kinds of different things. We crunch the numbers. We get the input from our, our correspondents from around the world, people in the field. And, of course, we look at the wealth of information, financial, Statistics. Yeah. statistical yeah. that's on the Internet. And we come up with this index. And this year, Panama came out at top again. And why is uh, that? It's always in the top five or six because it, it ranks within the top rankings of most of those categories. For instance, it's very affordable. It's close to the U.S. and it has um, an accommodating climate where accommodating means no, no ice snow. and snow. Really. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, right. We we do too. Yeah, um, coming from the Midwest, is excellent. And they've been dealing with North Americans for a century because of the, yeah. of the canal. Uh, so they have they have a built in economic engine in the canal. Uh, they know North Americans. They like North Americans. We've been down there for a century. It's easy to mm-hmm. fit in, and the expat community there is large and diverse. Uh, North American expats are all over the country. So it's very easy to settle into as well. It's just got a lot going for it. Well, give us an idea about the cost of living. Say, what is the average uh, cost for renting an apartment? Or buying a condo. Yeah, it depends on where you live. Just like in the U.S., if you live in a city, it will be more expensive than if you live in a small rural community somewhere. So a small rural community, you could probably rent a, a nice apartment or usually a house in a in a rural community for say $500 for two bedrooms, et cetera. In the city, you're, you'll be looking at $1,000 or up depending on what level of luxury you want, whether you're renting a furnished home, where in the city it is, whether it has an ocean view or it's it's back in a more local neighborhood, et cetera. But um, we say that you can live well in Panama for $2,500 to $3,500 a month, which would include your rent. Yeah, and that's all in for healthcare, food, entertainment, all that. That's everything. But, that's great. Yeah. Excluding travel, but you won't want to go anywhere if you're in Panama because the weather is fabulous. But of, of course, with all of these countries on the index, any place in the world, you can spend as much or as little as you want. But if you if you're in a nice little community and living like a local, you can save a lot of money. And uh, healthcare right. savings are kind of extraordinary too. When you take utilities and healthcare and property taxes off the top of most North American budgets, uh, as you can do in a, in Panama or in Mexico or in any Central or, or South American or tropical destination, you end up with big savings, big, big savings. I can see that. And, and I'm thinking, as you're talking about those numbers, we spend a little bit of time in Naples, Florida. And I think that, I don't know about rental prices. Well, I do during the season, the high season. Yeah. And you easily spend twenty to thirty thousand a month if you're gonna be, you know, close to the beach. 
And I'm right. wondering, you know, that would probably translate in Panama. You could probably get something close to the beach for what, fifteen hundred a month, or yeah, sure, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a that's a good bet, and it depends on what community and how close to the beach. But for twelve fifty to fifteen hundred dollars a month, you get a nice place, real close to the beach. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right, and I think one of the things too that goes into this consideration. If you are a golfer or you like you have expensive hobbies, then, you know, your cost of living is going to be a little bit higher, but it won't be nearly as high as it is in the United States. I mean, there are great golf courses all over Panama, Mexico, Costa Rica. Uh, So if you like that kind of thing, you can find them, but and you can enjoy your hobbies, but it will cost you a lot less. Huh. And and the people that that you've talked to that have moved. Uh, they probably come from all walks of life. You can't say that they're people who are from particular professions or parts of the country. What what, what do you see as uh, characteristics of the people you've come to know who decided to live abroad? They almost to a person have a certain sense of adventure because it takes it takes a little bit of a sense of adventure to think about moving outside your comfort zone in the first place. And we talk about moving abroad like it's something that everybody will do eventually. But in reality, not a lot of people will move away from the community that they're comfortable in and the community that they're just not cut out for it. They're just not cut out. And that's fine. Uh, you, You shouldn't have to move out of your comfort zone if you don't want to. But if you're at a point in life where you you could live in Mexico if you wanted. You could live in Panama if you wanted. You could live in Portugal if you wanted. And you gave it a try and you liked it. It's doable. It's eminently doable. But you you have to have that sense of adventure first to go, yeah, I could do that. I could give it a try. Mm-hmm. And it, it really doesn't make any difference, as you say, if you're in the professions, uh, if you worked in heating and air conditioning all your life, if you were a teacher, if you were a doctor, it really doesn't matter. We've met them all over there. We've met them all out in the big world. So what portion, what percentage do you think of the people who move, for example, to Mexico or Central America, uh, choose to earn income while they're there in some form? Oh, wow. That's that's a growing number. Yeah. And I think that's has been and will continue to be accelerated by the pandemic and so many people working from home and seeing and so many employers seeing that they can um, have employees that work remotely. So we're seeing a lot more young people, um, you know, they, they call it the Zoom boom, yeah. who are Zoom going boom. to some of these places and, um, you know, li- digital nomads who find that they can live and work everywhere. People our age are doing it as well. They're doing consulting work. They're, they're continuing to work in the in, in the field and the job that they have for, for, for years um, because they can do it online or they can do it part-time or whatever. So that's a big, that's a big growing concern. That was, a, that was one of the positive things from COVID as far as I'm concerned. A huge number of North Americans went, I can do this from home. If I can work from home, if I can do what I'm doing now right. from home, I can do it from anywhere there's an internet connection, anywhere on the planet. Why wouldn't I do this from Prague, Czechoslovakia? Why wouldn't huh. I do it from the Dalmatian coast? Why wouldn't I do it from uh, Bangkok? You know? Yeah. Why wouldn't I do it from a Mexican beach? 
Now, what are some of the other countries that made the list? I just happen to have the list up here. Oh, you do? How convenient. <laughs> yeah, and I, I want you to talk about Portugal, too, because that, apparently that's... That's popular. Did that's well? A, yeah, that's number number four on our list. Let me give you the top 10 right okay. now. Starting from number one was Panama. Number two is Costa Rica. Those two countries often change Lip first flop. and second places. Number three is Mexico. I don't think Mexico's ever been out of the top five. Portugal is number four because a lot of people are getting turned on to Portugal and the Algarve and, and the possibilities there. Uh, Ecuador is next, just because it's probably the best bang for buck in the Western hemisphere. You don't give up anything and it's amazingly affordable to live in. Gorgeous. Colombia mm. is next because it's right next door and it's it's a modern, bustling, booming economy. Uh, and then there's France and Malta and Spain, which are all European destinations that are rising because the cost of living is getting better and better and better when you use American dollars in Europe uh, because of the exchange rates. Right. And it's familiar uh, for, for North Americans to live in Europe almost without exception, no matter what country you're in, especially Western Europe, it feels familiar. You kind mm -hmm. of... You kind of know you you kind of know how things familiar work. Familiar with the culture, and it's easy to it's easy to settle into an environment like that. So, those were the top contenders this and year. Then ten, number ten is Uruguay. Uh, number ten is Uruguay. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I, you would you would agree though that uh, the European countries, generally speaking, the cost of living is going to be significantly higher than Central America. Is that true? You know, uh, people who live there say it's not significantly higher, um, that there are uh, certain ways, certain items that cost less in Europe. Um, so we have always, um, Dan and I have lived in Latin America uh, for 20 years, so we're more familiar with that. And we always had this perception that Europe would be higher. But um, our friends who live there say that that's not true on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And, and um, they have the numbers to prove it. When people think of Europe, they think of Paris, London, Dublin, right. Berlin. The right. tourist places. Those are incredibly expensive places to live, even for Europeans. But there are cities in uh, over in on our side of the pond, Mexico City, Quito, Ecuador, uh, Panama City, which they're high, higher costs as well, are the but, equal in every way of those places, but relatively less expensive. But in a in a Latin American context, those would be expensive places to live. Yeah, I think people are surprised that there there are bargains in Europe even purchasing real estate. I was, uh, this has been about six months ago, so it's recent. I was talking with uh, someone who was an investor in vacation properties in Italy. And mm -hmm. he said that Italy, maybe because they were hit real hard by the coronavirus and the front end, so they had huge problems at the time. So uh, their market was vulnerable. And he, he showed me, brought up online these listings that were not far from Florence, a neighboring city to Florence. Beautiful. And, and it, just like you can see listings in the U.S., you go online, mm -hmm. like realtor.com. It was the same thing over there. And you could look at this property. It was like $200,000, $250,000, which may not sound cheap to some people, but others listening to this are thinking, wow, this is a big, beautiful Mediterranean-type home and uh, in a gorgeous location it was much less than it would have cost for something like that in the U.S. 
And France is the same way. You can find places uh, near a small town uh, out in the country in France that are very affordable to buy and to rent. Um, Portugal, the same way. Portugal is probably one of the most affordable places in Western Europe to live right now. And if you're not living right in Lisbon, if you're not living in the hot spots on the coast, you can get some real bargains, right. even compared to U.S. prices. Yeah, Right. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the 2008 economic downturn, the global economic crash back then was still sort of being felt in Europe. And then they were hit by the pandemic, like you said. So they, the prices there were, have been stagnant for quite a while. And um, I think we're going to see that change, but it's still a bargain to go to Europe and to buy property there. Yeah. Especially with prices going crazy in the U S it's getting to where you can't, that's right. People, people who think they can no longer afford a vacation home based on the prices you're mentioning, you know, there are alternatives. So uh, right. Portugal interests me, and, and maybe the EU generally. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how difficult is it to get permission to go into a country where you don't have, you know, you don't have a passport, obviously, but you want to stay for at least a year? Is is it about equally difficult, whether it's the EU or whether it's Central America? Talk about any hurdles you have with that, or if there are any. Staying a year any place is a challenge because anywhere you go, you'll be starting off on a tourist visa. And most tourist visas are 30, 60, or 90 days, maybe three months. Uh, Then you can extend, you can work on getting a resident visa, and all those visa regimes are different from country to country. Uh, Europe, I don't think, is any different. What Europe now has going for it is... um, uh, a digital, a new digital nomad visa scheme that seems to be getting popular, especially in Eastern Europe. Uh, there are countries, Czechoslovakia is one as well. If you want to work online, you can get a visa to do that for a year. If you can demonstrate that you have a valid business, that you operate it via the internet, you can qualify for a visa that will let you stay there for a year to apply that trade. And those are renewable. That's one of the things that have happened with the advent of the internet and with and with online working. But as far as just heading someplace and going, I want to stay here a year, you'll always have to start out with a tourist visa, I think, and then and then delve into that particular visa situation of the country that you're in. So so let's use then Portugal as an example. Portugal, let's say that you wanted your goal was to spend a significant amount of time there. Say a year was the goal. So it sounds like you can't then enter with the confidence that you'll get a year, but it sounds like you can be confident you're saying that you can get three months, a month to three months, and that there's a good chance after that you could maybe get a a chance to stay longer. An extension? Right. Portugal has had what's called a golden visa, and they are just now... Uh, sort of re-looking at that and deciding what they're going to do with that golden visa. So um, this would be a good time if you're interested in Portugal to look at Portugal and see if you qualify for that golden visa and uh, act on that before they make changes to that program. It's my understanding that that has been pretty easy to qualify for residence visa under that uh, under that program, but that yeah. It's changing now. And again, the challenge is all of these requirements are changing because of COVID. 
especially in the Schengen zone in Europe. Uh, I believe it used to be possible to, to write out your tourist visa, take a trip to some other place in the Schengen zone, which would reset your visa and come back for another three months. I honestly don't know if that's possible anymore. Things, things have changed a lot in the last year or two. Uh, the place to find out is on the International Living webpage. If you go to internationalliving.com, there's an entire drop-down section on Portugal. It gives relative cost of livings for different metropolitan areas, the countryside, visa requirements, uh, what the healthcare system is like. All of that stuff is updated as often as necessary. So, so um, the uh, a, a um, resident visa is typically good for a year. Is that true? Is that correct? Again, every country is it different. It depends on the country. And, and um, it, it depends. Like we have permanent residency in Mexico. So ours is good. For 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 now, from now on, we're permanent residents in Mexico. How did you get well, how that? Do you, yeah, how do you qualify for that coming from the United States? In Mexico, you have to show a certain amount of income, and um, you know maybe maybe it's um, two thousand dollars for a couple. I'm not sure what it is right to $2, now. Fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, something like typical. that. And then um, you just go to the immigration office, and you have your your paperwork and, and they give you a resident visa after. It's bureaucracy. It's labyrinthine bureaucracy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's rarely easy, but it's perfectly doable. It's no different than dealing with the DMV in the United States, depending on where you live. So you don't um, have to give up your citizenship then? No. Okay. No. In and fact, you, you can't give up your citizenship unless you purposely renounce it at a U.S. consulate. You'll, you'll always be a U.S. citizen unless you do that, no matter what. Okay. Yeah, and there's yeah. really... No reason to do that. That we Yeah, even do. then they wouldn't accept it on the grounds that you are incompetent to make a decision. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. They want us to pay taxes for uh, as long as we possibly exactly. can. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you can't even escape. Don't get me started on this, but... But some people who have de decided they've had it, you know, with high taxes or whatnot, and they've decided they're going to leave the U.S., well, up to, I don't know when the law changed, but say prior to 30 years ago, you could just leave. But now they got you going out the door. You actually pay a portion of the assets that you leave the country with. Yeah. That's if you renounce your citizenship. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. If you decide you're yeah. leaving America, and I, yeah, I should make that clear. That's not to go live yeah. in Mexico. Right. But, <laughs> but it's just shocking that even if you decide to leave the country and give it up, renounce your citizenship, you will get taxed on your assets come leaving the country. You have so. to tote up everything that you own and everything that you're worth before they'll take your passport from you. And yeah, they'll decide how much they want to they want of it. Yeah. So now do the two of you own still own property in the United States? We do. We have a little bull hole condo that we bought in Omaha when our kids moved here so that we would have a place to stay when we came to visit and we could rent it on Airbnb when we're not here, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, and we've, we have a, an eight-year-old granddaughter. So she's like, um, a magnetic attractor. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that we started spending more and more time in the United States, yeah. one of the reasons we got caught here when COVID hit, but, uh, it just behooved us to have a place where we could hold up to be as close to her as we wanted to be during her formative years. And right. do you find that most people who do this spend a substantial or the entire year living abroad, there are people who maintain properties here, even if it's multi-years multi abroad? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. I think you have all 
ends of the spectrum. You have people who completely um, sell everything, which is what we did when we left in 2000, when we left the United States, we sold everything and moved with our dog and a couple of suitcases. Um, and then uh, slowly over the years, we've, you know, we, we've bought some rental properties to have some income coming in when we retire and that kind of thing. And, um, uh, let me, let me ask you, what is it? I'm interested. What is it that prompted you to do this? Did, did you acquire your position with this, with this publication that I was talking about earlier that you all have talked about and people need right. to definitely, you have an interest in this subject Definitely look up. It's called International Living.com. Living.com. It's a marvelous publication. Did your relationship with that organization come first and then you decide to move? It's her fault. We have, I was a subscriber to that little black and white newsletter oh, 20 years ago, okay. like you, and um, just sort of fell in love with that dream of moving overseas. We were working in advertising and marketing at the time, really high paced. It was during the dot-com um, boom. Yeah, and, I remember um, those days. Know, we, we were really, really working hard. And um, every chance we got, we would go to some warm tropical place and go scuba diving and kept thinking, oh, wow, wouldn't this be great if we could live somewhere like this? And international living kind of really sparked that dream. So we thought, had thought about how we could do this. We were much younger back then, <laughs> still in our prime earning years. So we knew we would have to make a living if we were to do this. We thought about becoming dive guides or buying a B&B or... Um, buying a small business somewhere and um, weren't sure we really wanted to be business owners. And then this opportunity came about to be able to work for International Living, work online. I think we were one of the first adopters of that, uh, being able to work online, send in our uh, our writing and our um, doing what we had really done our whole lives is work as writers yeah. and filing and, filing stories from abroad. But how did that deadline? How did that opportunity though develop? Did you con you you were receiving the magazine and you contacted them? I sent remember snail mail. I sent a letter <laughs> to the publisher who was who she had just moved to Ireland at the time. I sent a letter and it ended up on her desk. And it so happened they were they were looking for somebody in Ecuador, which wasn't where we had considered going. We wanted to go. We thought we would end up in Belize or somewhere like that. And uh, we had to look up Ecuador. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> she actually got on the phone then and called us and said, "Have you guys ever thought about Ecuador? Why don't you go there and see if you like it and see how you would feel about that?" And we went to Ecuador and ended up that we loved it. And uh, it's sort of just snowballed from there, but it all started with that little black and white newsletter and a snail mail resume sent to Ireland. I love right. that and story. To, to, be, <laughs> to be fair to Susan, somewhere in there, we were in the house in the middle of a Nebraska winter and we were here in the furnace go. And Susan said, you know, there, there are places in the world where you can live and you, it never snows. You don't have to worry about dying if you get locked out of the house. That's my kind of a place. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that got my attention. So your relationship, though, deepened with international travel or international living, rather, is that you you originally were a writer. Then what was the next step in your relationship with international living? 
Well, we we ended up going to Ecuador in 2000, um, 2001. Actually, it was right after 9-11. So, yeah. you know, the whole world is in upheaval. But that seems to be like sort of our, you know, <laughs> our life story. If there's upheaval, we're kind of in the middle of it somehow. But um, we were actually in Paris at an international living conference. They were they wanted to meet us, get to know us when 9-11 happened. And so we weren't able to come back to the States for an extra week because no flights were coming back. And we, we our house had been sold and we had this plan to go to Ecuador. And, and then at that point, you're kind of like, well, should I go or should I hunker down like everybody else is doing? But we decided, well, well we knew that if we didn't do go. it, we'd never we'd never know how it would turn out. We at least got to give it a shot and yeah. see how it works. So. We did, and it seemed right after 9-11 seemed like a good time to explore other places. Nobody was well. traveling, so no, we yeah, were travel. right. one of, you know, we were in Ecuador for a year and rarely saw uh, fellow Americans, except for the, the small number that lived there. When we got to Ecuador, we could basically count the, the expat retirees. I mean, there were- there We knew were all Brits the U.S. There. expats, yeah, for sure. there were Brits there who were working in the oil industry, but- Retirees, this was kind of something new. And and now there are thousands. Now there are thousands. But at that time, we thought, you know what? Mexico might be a more promising place to write about for U.S. expats at this time. So we talked our way into Mexico. And then where did we go after that? Then we went to Panama. Then we went to Panama. Back to Mexico, back to Ecuador. You two have a glamorous life. You know, you really do. for it, yeah. (laughs) It sounds glamorous, but it's just our life. I don't know. And every time we moved, we we realized that it was easier and easier to do because the places we were moving to were not expensive. Culturally, they weren't hard to get to know to move into. There was an ex. There were or at least some expats in all of these places that we could network with and find out something about. And we we just kind of became serial relocators. Well, every couple of years we'd to, go. To what extent, though, do you learn the local language? I guess most of these countries it would be Spanish that we've been talking about. Yeah. Did, have you acquired? Yeah. Did you have any Spanish ability before you went? We, we thought we did, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but you thought you did though. Yeah. True. It's different when well, you get on the ground. Right. And what we did quickly, especially when we got to our first posting in Ecuador, we quickly learned restaurant and taxi Spanish. Then you can get where you need to go and get what you want to eat. And everything... <laughs> learned how to order a pizza on the phone. That was hard. Everything okay. after that is just icing on the cake. There are so many U.S. expats abroad and so many locals in these countries want to practice their English on you that we never became... I guess what you'd call fluent. We're functional. We're very functional. Functional, okay. Fluency, we move around too much um, and change change milieus too often to, to actually work on our fluency. But functionality has served us well for 20 years. Dan and Susan, I have to ask you, 20 years ago when you decided to do this, did you have family and friends that said, come on, guys, this is crazy, and tried to talk you out of it? I don't think anybody tried to talk us out of it, but you know, we thought they would all come and visit us <laughs> and they didn't <laughs> really. I mean, with, you know, with a few exceptions, but 
they were not as they were not as sold on the ideas. Maybe well, definitely not as sold as we were. But there were a lot of people who said, "Wow, I envy you guys. I I I wish that I could do that. I'm going to come and see what this is all about as soon as you get over there." And like Susan said, rarely showed up. Right. But wait, now in fairness, these friends are mainly in Omaha, right? Versus right versus right, but yeah, yeah versus L A. Omaha travel too. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Omaha is. Omaha is a wonderful place. It's my hometown. I love it. Uh, there are just places that are are a lot more comfortable and cheaper to live, and that's where that's where we like to live. So um, when you when you decided to go down there, you uh, given where you were in your career, unlike people who are retired, not to mention you have opportunities now, as we've talked about, to still earn significant money. But you guys went down there at a time in your lives that even with this gig with International Living, I have to believe that you made a decision to cut your income potentially. Because couldn't you have earned more as a professional at that time here in the U.S.? For sure. Oh, yeah. For sure. But we were sort of all about um, adventure. But we... I guess, you know, we also knew that we would be able to live for less by going overseas. So when you kind of do all of that economic, you know, when you do all the math, it's like I could stay here and I can earn $100,000 a year and spend most of it to live here. Or I can go there and I only have to earn $50,000 a year, and I don't even have to spend that much. You can save. We we were making really good money at our businesses before we left the United States, but we couldn't save any money. As soon as we moved abroad, we were able to save money because the difference in expenses was, was that dramatic. We didn't give up anything. We still had great health care. We still got, I mean, we... Uh, Often we didn't have 15 choices of roasted red peppers at the grocery store. Sometimes there was only one or two choices. Right. But, or you had to make them yourself. Or you had to make them <laughs> yourself. But um, for the quality of life that we got for as little as we were spending, it, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, just, just no well brainer. worth it. So right. on, on, on the subject of health care, um, of course, you have accessibility to the United States, but I've heard good things about the quality of health care in some parts of Central America, more Costa Rica, Costa more Rica, Costa Rica. But yeah. uh, can you talk about health care in Mexico or other places you've lived? Yeah, I mean, Dan is better at this because he's had several surgeries, <laughs> rotator cuff. I'm falling apart. And I know what I that's got, like. I got one rotator cuff fixed in Quito, Ecuador from a First sports we doctor, there. a sports doctor who actually studied at UT Austin. I got really? my other shoulder worked on in Merida, Mexico, uh, from another specialist there. Uh, had both my eyes worked on in Panama, in Panama, and in Ecuador. Uh, every major metropolitan area that we've ever been in has at least one or two medical facilities that are the equal of anything we've seen in the United States. And to be fair, uh, the United States hasn't ranked number one on any assessment of healthcare systems and outcomes uh, for quite a while now. Uh, France is always at the top. Most European countries are at or near the top. Um, Costa Rica, Colombia have well-rated healthcare systems. 
so we're we have no problem yeah, with with never, offshore healthcare. Never been worried about that. Now, how do you pay for it? If I may ask, uh, do you is it generally affordable enough where you pay out of pocket, or how does that work? We always had we've always had um, private insurance. And private insurance, of course, is much cheaper in these countries as well. If you are a resident, a legal resident of a, a country, you can buy into their buy into buy private health insurance or sometimes qualify for their national health plan, which is what is so great about Costa Rica because they have probably one of the most national, one of the best national health systems in the world and it's very affordable. It takes a resident visa though. You can't just go down there and join the national health system. You become a resident and then you can avail of of that, which is true in most places. Residency is required for the national health scheme, but everybody has private health insurance companies just as we do here in the United States. And a lot of expats will pay out of pocket for the things that they can afford. Um, have a be members of the national healthcare plan for stuff that's a little more complicated, and then have private insurance with a cancer writer or a heart and lung writer, something like that, in case of catastrophic stuff. So you can cobble together a healthcare plan in many countries in Latin America in a way that you just can't do in the United States. So what is the typical cost for private insurance monthly? It, it again, it depends on your age, your existing, your pre-existing mm-hmm. conditions, much like it does here. But I think when we, the last time we bought it in Mexico, it was about $3,000. I mean, pesos, but it was, if you relate it to dollars, 3, about $3,000 for the dollars. two of us it, for a comparable plan as to what we probably would have bought in the, in the States. I think we had a $3,500 deductible, something like that. Yeah. We, we have to add that we both, during the time that we've been in the United States during COVID, now qualify for Medicare. We, we, we reached a certain age. And Medicare is one of the best national health care plans on the planet. We're, uh, we're finding it is expensive, though. But it's, it's getting increasingly expensive. So you have to really make a determination. We know some expats living abroad who have completely given up their Medicare plans they don't pay for Part B anymore. They've let their Part A lapse. They've just gone out of the system. We know just as many who keep their Medicare current while they're living abroad in case they need to move back, in the case they need to come back and avail of the healthcare system here. So it de- really depends on what your personal situation is. But like I said, living in a place with a national healthcare service and affordable private insurance, yeah. you can cobble together a healthcare plan in ways that you really can't in the United States. That's impressive. And I know that 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 comes as shocking information, I think, to many people who assume that Central American countries are not banana republics, but certainly not comparable in terms of their quality of healthcare to the U.S. But I would further add that I'm, I I think that a number of their doctors have been trained in the U.S. You mentioned somebody mm-hmm. from UT Austin. So I, it might be that they'll have the same doctors that they would virtually otherwise have there. Or in Europe. I had an eye doctor who trained in Sweden. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And typically those doctors who've trained internationally speak excellent English. So there's not that issue to worry about either. If you're in a country, if you're in a Spanish speaking country, or if you're in France, you're, you'll very often find a doctor that speaks English. But like in the United States, these are the major metropolitan areas. The closer you are to a major metropolitan area, the better the services are, the better the healthcare is. Um, yeah, that's that's the yeah. same all over and the world. Fortunately, most of these countries are so small that you typically <laughs> yeah. are close to a major metropolitan area. It's not like the United States where, you know, um, you've got Omaha and then you have western Nebraska where they're really small little towns. You flip a coin right. to go to Omaha or Denver for your health care. That's a <laughs> that's a long drive. man. Yeah. Yeah. I could. And you're right. I know how even in the United States, there's a huge difference between the qualities of care, depending on where you are. And. I grew up in Appalachia, not far from Knoxville, Tennessee, and and it just doesn't. There's not the quality of services there even today that right. there, there is right. in, in St. Louis, which is where we are now. Uh, exactly. What I, time flies whenever we talk to you guys. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about there. There's this program that's gotten some attention where you purchase. Um, you don't exactly purchase citizenship but you agree mm-hmm. to purchase some level of real estate or investment in the country. I've talked to people who have had some interest in that. That's not for all of our viewers, but those who have the ability to make an investment. Do you do you have any opinions on that as a route to living in a country? There, you know, there are, I was going to mention that earlier when we were talking about getting visas in Europe. In many countries, a real estate purchase allows you to get an investor visa. For instance, in Ecuador, I believe when we lived there, it was only $25,000. If you bought a property worth $25,000, that would get you a resident visa. In some countries, it's $150,000. I think Costa Rica now maybe, or or Panama's $200,000. If you buy a condo, uh, that will get you a resident visa. So those, I think, are excellent ways to get a resident visa in some of these countries. Others, if you're looking to, um, you know, if you just want to invest in the Caribbean, for instance, and you you don't really plan to live there, you can, you know, you can, you can, it's called um, CIP. It's a, it's essentially an investor visa. Yeah. There are there are two major ways that North Americans, many of the North Americans we know, get their resident visa. One is a pensionado visa. You just you apply as a retiree, which means you have to show that you have a thousand, twelve fifty, fifteen hundred dollars a month coming in Very from little. an annuity, yeah. a retirement plan, some dependable source. The other way is an investment visa. You see the house that you want, uh, you pay $175,000 for it. That puts you over the limit for your investment visa, and that qualifies you for residency as well. So being a pensionado and being a property owner are the two major ways that we know a lot of people get their residency visas in these countries. Any comments on, we haven't talked about islands in the Caribbean. Um, Those sometimes get a lot of attention. Uh, maybe they're more expensive, perhaps, to live in. Any comments on any of those? You haven't lived there personally on Cayman or no, or Virgin no, no. But we spend a lot of time in Belize, which they Aruba. say is the is the biggest island attached to the mainland in the Caribbean. <laughs> well, I've heard good things about. I've heard a mixed bag about Belize. Do you like Belize? 
we yeah. love Belize. Yeah. I think as we get older, we don't want to live probably, we don't want to live in a, a hot, humid beach environment anymore. Yeah. Um, we like, we like being at the beach, but we want to be um, comfortable. You know, we want to be comfortable. Yeah. And so that's, you know, we were, we, we started this wanting, thinking we wanted to dive our way around the world. We're, we're a little too old for that now. Um, even though we still sort of like that culture and that, that environment, but, um, the Caribbean is, is a beautiful place to live. And there are, um, if you're looking for, uh, you know, tax, tax breaks, some of those countries offer some, some really good options. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it's it, you're saying though it's pretty much hot year round. Well, yeah. and and it's an island. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd have to think to hard right now to live on a tropical island. There are great places to visit, but that's where, for my money, that's where they keep the sand and the bugs. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, I can live really well without either of those things. I'm comfortable at about five thousand feet. I'm uh, I'm in the tropics, which is perfect, you know, perfect climate, really. Right. Yeah, I get it that um, everything on island is very expensive because it all has to be imported. Right, exactly. So you're paying for that additional transportation for everything. Right. Grand there Cayman, are big islands, super you know, expensive. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it sounds great to swing on a beach and eat fish tacos, but... You do that for uh, three or four months in a row, and you start thinking, man, that, well, there's more to life than this. Uh, uh, a Jimmy Buffett song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I think I would turn into that character in that song of his if I had to hang out on an island uh, 365 days a year. I talked to somebody who, she had this fantasy. She went to law school. Uh, she was a little younger than I was, but when she graduated law school, she... Uh, she had this fantasy of living in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So yeah. she uh, she did it. I mean, I guess you can lawfully do it. It's like you all point out, there are so many options that people have that they don't think they have. Right, right. And so as a result, sadly, they, they go to their grave, I think, many people, because they just didn't do... The research. Yeah, yeah, they didn't get out, as you all said earlier, the comfort zone. Well, right. she she was, to her credit... You know, she thought, you know, this sounds wonderful. I'll, I'll go and get a job there. She did. She got a job as a, a public defender, I think, in, in uh, Charmalee, I think is the name of this this city. So anyway, but she said, man, after living on a tropical island like that for she about two years, she was so tired of it. I mean, it's the sameness. Yeah. I mean, a lot of sameness. And if you like that, and there are people who do, but, exactly, but she she fled. It and, got old real fast. It came back to yeah. the U.S. But but there's I, a big difference between being on vacation and living somewhere. Very what true. What we always recommend is is being somewhere where you think you might want to retire or start a second life long enough to find out what it's like to actually hook up your utilities, get your mail, uh, what the internet connection is like. Uh, how they stock the grocery stores, see what it's like to actually live there instead of just being on vacation because they're two different things. Very different. You guys are a wealth of wisdom. Uh, (laughs) The the life experiences you all have had for the last 20 plus years. So uh, we'd love to be able to have you back again and talk about things as they change, and I'm sure they will. 
And meanwhile, I really want people to check out International Living. It's a marvelous publication. I like the idea of physically holding a publication, but I guess now it's all online, right? No, you, you, can, you can still you, get the magazine delivered to your door every yeah, month. Keep them right there on your coffee table if you want. Well, I, I hope some listening to this will, you'll change their lives based on this show, maybe. <laughs> Definitely. Anyway, it's a wonderful, we thank you for taking time to visit with us, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Thank guys. You. Our pleasure. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.